bit about our general chapter. Uh, this is something that interests Oblates. Uh, part of being an Oblate is you're connected to an actual community. And uh, we as a community, part of that uh, reality is that we're part of the Confederation of Benedictines. And within that confederation, we're part of the congregation. Let me just say very briefly what that means, and then uh, I want to tell you about our recent general chapter, which was the meeting of all the superiors of our congregation. Uh, the Benedictine order, the Order of St. Benedict, is technically speaking not a religious order in the strict sense. That's because monasticism as an institution in the church goes back to the earliest centuries of the church, whereas the idea of a religious order uh, doesn't really spring up until the high Middle Ages, and particularly comes into its own with the mendicant orders of the Franciscans and Dominicans, uh, though there were precedents for the idea of a religious order before that with uh, the Cistercians and with the, the Cluniac reforms, a reform of the Benedictines that took place in the 11th century. Uh, the reason we're not in order in the strict sense is that we are actually a confederation of autonomous monasteries. And what this means is that uh, the model for monasticism that goes back to the early church is that of a charismatic teacher surrounded by a group of disciples. Okay, And uh, so what that means is each of our monasteries has uh, an abbot or a conventual prior, which is my title, who is actually a, an ordinary of the church. So uh, that means I actually have jurisdiction within the small group here uh, of eight men under my charge. Uh, so they, they don't really fall under the bishop. They fall under me. I'm their superior. And um, then what happens is that the difficulty with this from an ecclesial point of view is that, uh, say, the Holy Father can't deal with every abbot separately there are too many abbeys out there. And so over the centuries, the Benedictines have grouped themselves into congregations. And there are 20-some congregations today. Ours, uh, which is called the Subiaco Cassanese Congregation, is the largest in terms of houses and in terms of monks. We've got about 1,200 monks and uh, I believe about 700 sisters who are affiliated to our congregation, though, again, canonically, they're not part of the structure, uh, but they participate in our life in various ways, and, and we do it theirs. Uh, to govern ourselves, the congregation is a very helpful thing, because as a small monastery, we don't have a lot of resources in terms of personnel, uh, just in terms of experience. And so it's very helpful to group ourselves with other like-minded communities. And then, for instance, one of the things that will happen is in November we have two visitors coming from a monastery in Scotland and a monastery in Germany who are part of our congregation. They will interview the community and give us a report, tell us how we're doing, and make suggestions about what we should do in the future or, or say, hey, you're doing fine, everything's fine. And uh, this is a way we can exercise some responsibility for each other. Uh, but there are also bigger issues involved. And so every four years we have what's called a general chapter. And so all of the superiors of the autonomous monasteries get together. Plus, in our congregation, because we're so large, uh, we're broken into eight provinces around the world. Uh, 
English, French, Italian, Spanish, uh, Philippine, African Madagascar, and Vietnamese. And uh, so representatives from each of the provinces also come. They're not superiors, but they represent the, the non-superiors. They represent the brothers. And uh, we had two very big issues to deal with. We, we have the same issues that most uh, orders in the church do today, which is that we've got lots of vocations in places like Vietnam and not in the West. We have plenty of money and resources for education in the West and not in Vietnam. So how do we share our resources? I mentioned Vietnam because it's a particularly vexing problem. Uh, the language distance between Vietnamese and European languages, say, is for most Vietnamese almost uh, insuperable if they don't learn English young. And for most of us in the West, I'll just say I, you know, I'm not going to learn Vietnamese <laughs> at this point in my life. Uh, and so say in helping with formation in Vietnam is not so easy. We also face the, uh, the difficulty of having a communist government that's officially anti-religion, and so uh, there are limits put on their vocations, um, and uh, I, I won't go on record saying what we do about that. <laughs> I don't want to get them in trouble. But, um, so we have these things to think about, but in this particular chapter we needed to elect an abbot president, our previous abbot president served for 12 years and, and retired, he's 75. So we elected uh, Abbot Guillermo from Medellin in Colombia. And it's kind of exciting, it's our first uh, American abbot president. It's also interesting that our last four abbot presidents have been from each of the four language, primary language groups. So we've had an English uh, abbot president, then a French, then Italian, now uh, Spanish speaking. So, um, uh, so it was, that was uh, a relief to get that out of the way. The other big vexing question is, we need some kind of place, well, we need a place for the Abbot President to live, and he has a little council that deals with the Holy See uh, and uh, represents us there. And the problem there is that the, the house where they've lived, the Italian government has changed their tax laws, and is going to begin to charge us rent and tax on this house. We can't afford it. So what do we do? And I was very pleased that we, we really, I thought, had a very productive discussion on this. And uh, it seemed to me there was a lot of unity and, and uh, a sense of common purpose and direction at the end of the chapter. So I was very grateful for that. I thank you for your prayers. And um, uh, I would just ask you to pray for our Abbot President and hit the two communities he leaves behind in Colombia because they will miss him a lot and they'll, they'll need some help. So uh, do pray for Abbot Guillermo and Medellin and Guatape in Colombia. Um, so what I want to talk about today properly with you, I'd like to uh, introduce for some of you and review for some of you uh, concepts of Lexio Divina. This is one of the primary aspects of Benedictine spirituality. St. Benedict legislates between two and three hours of reading every day. And I'll talk about what that actually looked like in the sixth century as a way of getting into the idea for us today. But I thought what I'd do uh, to make this a little more interactive than I tend to be, I thought I would start with just some questions to get an idea of why it's important to read. I think we all know it's important to read, but let's think about it for a moment. Um, I'd like each of you to think of a book that 
you read at some point, any time in your life, and you felt it made a big impact on you, changed your life in some way. It doesn't have to be the Bible. It could be a novel. It could be a, a political book. It could be a book of poetry. Just think about that book for a bit. And uh, then what I'd like you to think about next is how did it change you? What did, what did it actually do for you? What, what came about as a result of your reading this book? Uh, would anybody like to share a few sentences about how a book can change you? Yes, Dennis. Uh, I like the book uh, Joshua. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, it, it kind of opened my uh, eyes and heart to other people's concept of God uh-huh. instead of just not my, my way is the right way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of a simple book, but that, that, sure. Simple's fine. Any, anybody else want to share their experience of being changed? Tony? Um, back in high school, I was introduced to a book called Markings by Dag Hammarskjöld. Uh, he was Secretary General of the UN in the late 50s and early 60s. Nobody knew he had any religious beliefs at all until they found his diary after he and 23 other members of the UN were killed flying to Tanzania to settle the Civil War and were shot down by found his diary, and it turns out he was a Christian mystic. Um, and uh, there's no facts at all inside the book. There's no historical uh, events related there. It's all these very internal and very personal reflections. <laughs> uh, I was introduced to it by a Jesuit when I was in high school, and uh, it was just this uh, uh, astounding introduction to the depths of another person that I had never experienced before. Um, his struggles, his inspiration, uh, his ultimately his struggle to say yes to life every day and to put that on the hand of God. And uh, it influenced me both to follow a spiritual path and also to work in international relations. I didn't want to go to that. I just keep going back to the book and back to the book and I open it and just start out every page and there's always something new. So interesting. Yeah, thank you. Martha? I thought of two things, but I'll share one. Um, Tips in search of self, and I was probably like a sophomore junior in high school. I used to come here at Bridgeport every day. But um, it was about a young little boy who was born uh, severely handicapped. But it wasn't something physical or even mental about him. It was that he did not bond with his mother nor his father. And so he felt spiritually rejected, so he grew into this handicapped person. And until the parents really got in touch with, you know, with God, uh, that he was able to overcome and be a productive human being. So for me, that was really changing because I thought, you know, if we are going to be parents in this life, this is way before I was a parent, you know, we have to be careful what we put into that child because, you know, that's a walking human being. So it's so important every moment, even as you're expecting the child, that it's always received in love. And just, you know, um, homage to God, you know, humility. Yeah. Well, thank you. Maybe one more, if I saw some of the hand over here. John? Oh. <coughs> Recognizing becoming an adult and wanting to have to relate to my parents as an adult no longer as a child, I read a novel called Mr. Mockery's Daughter. And it's about the story of a woman from her girlhood into her death. And a big part of that is her being a mother. 
So, if I can sort of summarize, uh, we we have this experience. It, it broadens our own experiences to include somebody else's experiences that we we wouldn't have had. Uh, so our, our vision of things gets broader, uh, and also. Reading can inspire us to be different, to act different. So there's a kind of intellectual component of new ideas, new ways of looking at things, new perspectives. But then there's also a question of how we act, how we live our lives. And books can help to spur us to make different kinds of decisions. Um, in a way, I think that you know most of us, probably if, if you've studied moral philosophy or moral theology, uh, it's... My guess is that your textbook wouldn't be that inspiring, but if you read Kristen Mavren's Daughter or you read uh, Doug you see somebody else doing something heroic and you think, yes, I want to be like that. So there's something about a story that makes us want to change the way we are if we see a really uh, good person. Uh, so reading is it's a wonderful gift. And it's, it's especially wonderful that God has entrusted his word to the human vocabulary, uh, human writing. It's an amazing mystery, actually, that uh, God has chosen this particular way of revealing himself, that the prophets would write down stories of Israel, and these would turn out to have this deep prophetic meaning for uh, us as Christians today, I often find it just, just terrifically fascinating that uh, we spend hours every day chanting songs which are sometimes 3,000 years old. Um, they were written in a completely different language, uh, different historical situation. And yet, uh, this is primary food for our spiritual lives, you know, that all the scriptures are this way. And uh, the other thought experiment I'd like you to do uh, for just a moment, uh, Tony's already alluded to this, but just think about a book that you, you read and then you put down and you picked it up again because you liked it so much and you read it a second time. And I wonder um, if, you, if you got more out of it the second time. Uh, or if uh, some, sometimes it's the case, you read a book a second time and you realize, well, this wasn't as good a book as I thought. But oftentimes it's the case that we read a book a second time and we think, oh man, I missed all this this last time. This is a lot better than I remember. <laughs> or you see a plot line that you missed the first time through, you know. So uh, careful reading is particularly rewarding in a way that just reading for information or uh, sort of reading to get on with life is less helpful. This is important to bear in mind because when we talk about spiritual reading in monastic life, it involves a lot of repetition and involves a lot of slow processing of God's word. It's not something, again, where we can read. Um, <laughs> reminds me of uh, when I was back in, in choral music, a conductor I was working with uh, stopped the piece we were working on and points at one guy and he says, uh, why, why are you singing with your eyes closed? Why aren't you watching me? You know? The guy said, well, I know the piece already. <laughs> but of course, um, the point is, every time you do a piece of music, it's brand new. And you need, the reason you have a conductor is because he helps you to sort of understand it at a deeper level than you could by yourself. 
Um, so the scriptures are like this too. It's, it's possible for us to say, oh yeah, I've read Paul's letter to the Romans. I don't need to read it anymore. Um, but this would be a mistake, a kind of category mistake. It's not like uh, when I make bread, I don't need the recipe anymore. I don't, I've got the recipe in the book on the shelf, but I don't need to look at it because I know it. Um, God's word isn't like that. It's something that continually opens deeper and deeper meanings to us. I'm going to talk about how we can dispose ourselves to receive those deeper meanings. Uh, but part of what it involves is reading slowly, carefully, attentively, and probably repeating a lot. Um, and especially because I'm sure you all know the Bible's wording sometimes is not immediately obvious what the writer's getting at. So sometimes we just have to sit there with the a sentence to figure out what it says. Sometimes Paul's sentences are just hard to figure out what the subject and verb are. <laughs> you know, and scholars will debate about this too. You know, when you read it in translation, you're already getting there. They're, they're trying to help you. You know, the first five verses of St. Peter's first letter are all one sentence in the Greek. So be thankful that you've got a translator who parses it for you because the Greek sentence is, is not easy. Uh, even if you're good at Greek. So I mentioned that St. Benedict uh, gives monks several hours a day to read. And uh, there are several things about this that are really fascinating. The first is that uh, today we take literacy for granted, though this is slipping a lot in the United States, I'm sorry to say. Uh, most people we know can read. But in St. Benedict's day, literacy was not to be taken for granted. And all kinds of people entered the monastery, including slaves, who would not have been taught to read most of the time. Um, and uh, not everybody who entered the monastery could read Latin if they could read. So uh, there's a story in the life of St. Benedict where there is a Goth who enters the monastery. The Goths spoke a, a version, an early version of German. And uh, it's, it's not really that closely related to Latin. Um, and so you had guys entering the monastery who had to learn Latin besides learning how to read. Uh, so it's, it's really significant that St. Benedict expects that his monks will read. So he, he must have made provision in some way to teach the guys how to do this. So this was a big part of the life. I want to speak a little bit about what reading was like in those days because um, it, it, it can help us with our imagination to understand why they, they valued it so much. First thing to remember is that books were really, really rare and super expensive. Um, I was in a debate with atheists about six or seven years ago now. Uh, it's funny how time flies. It doesn't seem that long ago. And um, uh, one of the, most of these atheists were, were uh, fallen away Protestants. And uh, one of them uh, was, was talking to me over the internet about uh, Catholics not allowing uh, the faithful to read the Bible. And she said, uh, you know, um, they weren't allowed to bring their Bibles to church. And I said, you know, you realize that to, to carry a Bible to church in the fourth century, you would have needed a mule and a cart. Because <laughs> these were huge books. I mean, they, they couldn't produce books. Like, we, we, we have this very thin paper that we can produce now that's pretty durable. They didn't have that in those days. They had things like vellum. Uh, which is animal skin, and so it's very thick, it's very durable again, uh, but it's heavy, and if you have 100 pages of this sewn together, it could be 50 pounds, you know, it's, these are big books, um, and they're expensive, because if you're going to 
produce vellum, uh, this means you've got to take uh, a herd of cattle and slaughter them and, and take the skins, uh, remove the hair, tan them, um, do all the preparations. Uh, you can ask Father Brendan about this. He knows the whole process. It's very lengthy. It's very difficult. Then you have to grind you know, your, your ink uh, color. You've got to add some, some liquid to it. You've got to get quills that you have to keep sharp. And then you, you don't have electric lights. So if you're going to do this, say, during the winter, you're going to need oil lamps. And, and, uh, and you're going to handwrite everything. You're not going to sit at your typewriter and, or keyboard and type it. So you can imagine how difficult it would be. Imagine if you had to sit down and handwrite the whole book of Genesis. You know, that would probably take you, if, even if you don't have to prepare the vellum or anything, it would probably take you a year or two years just to do that. Um, when uh, the first full Bible that was produced was uh, underwritten by Constantine, and I forget how many scribes he had involved, but I, there were something like 100 scribes working on this, and it took them a couple of years to produce one Bible, which we still have, by the way. Uh, so, um, but this is an emperor. I mean, he has lots of resources. Monasteries were not that wealthy. So to have a book was a big, big deal. And to be able to read it, you know, imagine if you've never, if you've only seen a handful of books in your life, and during Lent, St. Benedict uh, has your abbot give you a copy of St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And you get to read it for yourself. I mean, imagine how amazing that would be to hear Paul speaking to you for the first time directly, not in church, not somebody else reading to you, but actually encountering his words on the page, written by somebody you know, who, who copied a copy of a copy of a copy of Paul's letter. Right? Uh, so we, we take reading so much for granted. Um, I'll, I'll ask you this question later on, but I'll just say for now, one of the major obstacles we have is that Books and print and words are everywhere. Even if you don't want to read, if you just go to the gas station, you're bombarded with signs and, and messages about this, that, and the other thing. Normally advertisements, but um, uh, there was none of that in the 6th century. I mean, there were hardly any words anywhere written down. <laughs> um, and so to, to have... For St. Benedict to put the resources into making sure that there was a library and that the monks could read tells you something about the priority he places on the Word of God, how important it is for the monastic life. So, um, interestingly enough, St. Benedict spends the most time in his rule talking about reading in chapter 48, the title of which is On the Daily Manual Labor. <laughs> so, um, he doesn't say that reading is a manual labor, but I do think he implies that it's work. So that's another thing I want to say about reading in the ancient world. When you got uh, uh, this book given to you at Lent, and you opened it up, you would have, uh, in St. Benedict's Day, all capital letters, no spaces between words. If you ran out of space on one line, you just start on the next line, even if you're in the middle of a word. Uh, there's no punctuation. Okay, no verses, no, no verse breaks, no chapter breaks. Those are all medieval. 
Um, so it's, it's hard work just to decipher this. I mean, imagine if you got your newspaper in the morning and it was all capital letters with no breaks between words, okay? You'd have to take time to interpret what you're seeing. It wouldn't just be obvious. You couldn't just read it straight out. You have to, you have to take it in and sort of figure out what it means first. So St. Benedict says something interesting when he talks about reading at table. So each day at the meal, and uh, outside of the Easter season, there's only one meal per day in the monastery, uh, one of the brothers reads to the community. This is uh, probably a book of scripture, but it might be a book from one of the fathers of the church, uh, an explanation of scripture. And uh, St. Benedict says the person who reads shouldn't just be anybody who picks up the book, but it should be someone who can edify the hearers, meaning that uh, he has the skill for being able to pick out words and, and get the meaning and, and convey the meaning of the words. Uh, and this is actually a lot of work. It takes a lot of practice to read this way. And again, the, in our community, we, we have reading at table as well. Um, but again, we just have so many advantages. We have paragraph breaks, we have chapter breaks, we have uh, all kinds of uh, things that, that give away the, uh, the meaning. That's great. I mean, it's, 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 I, I don't think we should go back to uh, you know, getting rid of spaces between words that have no punctuation. Uh, but here's the danger. The danger is that we can read so quickly. That again, we can, we can read a sentence, two sentences, three sentences, and think we got it. I think we've got the meaning. We don't feel like we have to puzzle over the meaning the way St. Benedict's monks would have had to puzzle over the meaning. They would have had to sit with each sentence for a while before they made sure they got it, you know, because it's easy to make mistakes uh, when, when you have all these disadvantages. For us, I'm sure most of us have had this experience, which I have from time to time, where you're reading a book, get to the end of a page, and you don't remember a single thing you just read. Right? And, and you're sure you've read everything. I mean, you've, you've, you've seen all the words. You've seen sentences. Uh, but it hasn't registered. It hasn't sunk in. And um, one of the things we're going to see about the traditional understanding of Lexio Divina is that the first step is reading and internalizing. Uh, so for, for the monks of the Egyptian desert, this meant memorizing scripture. Uh, and, and not just um, actually memorizing, I shouldn't use that word. I, I want to say learning it by heart. Okay, so not an intellectual, uh, yeah, I can, I can you know, recite pi to 80 digits or something like that. No, it's I know the meaning by heart. It's a little bit like, um, if I can go back to my musical training again, it's one thing to be able to play the notes of a piece and get them all in the right order and the right rhythm. It's another thing to play a piece of music, <laughs> right? It's another thing to sort of know how the piece goes and invest oneself in it. And what we want in uh, our reading of the Bible is to have that kind of familiarity with it. Uh, so that, uh, here's another example. Uh, George Steiner, the great literary critic, uh, in one of his books called Real Presences, he says, you know, who's the, who's the interpreter of a play by Shakespeare? Is it the critic who writes a book about Hamlet? Or is it Laurence Olivier who performs Hamlet? 
who is Hamlet, who has to get inside the character and be Hamlet. Okay? So, what I'd like to suggest is that the, the true interpreter of the scripture is the saint. The person who is so informed by scripture that everything he or she does is about Christ. Uh, and so we perform the scriptures in a sense. We, they, they inform us. We become one with Christ through our internalization and memorization, learning by heart of the scriptures. So how do we do this? Uh, I'll get to obstacles at the end. Let's, let's, uh, let's jump in with um, how we do this. So there, there's a classic four-step approach to Lexio Divina. Anybody know it here? Can anybody tell me what the four stages of, uh, starting with Lexio? Yeah, Dennis, you know it? Uh, let's see. Reading is the word of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, meditate. Mm-hmm. Very good. So the Latin words, uh, if, if you're interested, are lexio, reading, meditatio, meditation, oratio, prayer, and then contemplatio, contemplation. So let me unpack each of those step at a time. Uh, it's very, very helpful, I find, even though in practice... When you're encountering the Word of God, the Holy Spirit can speak to you any old way He wants. Uh, but it's good for us, again, to dispose ourselves properly. So this schematic helps us to be ready to hear what God has to say. So the first thing is, is, is reading. You, just, you have to open the book and, and start reading. <laughs> uh, a couple of bits on this that I find helpful, or I've found helpful with teaching the brothers how to do this. In a lot of uh, books on Lexia, they talk about going slowly and, and repeating and so on. I've done that myself. Uh, however, I would say it's not necessarily a bad thing once in a while just to read. Just to read and know what's there. Because the Bible is, is all of a piece. Uh, and so, for instance, if, uh, if you read, say, the history books in the Old Testament, it can be helpful just to find out what David actually did, you know. Like, uh, when we, we, every year at Christmas, you know, we say, uh, Jacob was, uh, or Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac was the father of Jacob, Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers, etc., etc. And we get into all these kings, and, and uh, you get David and Solomon, and it's like, uh-oh, uh, Rehoboam, Asa, Asaph, uh, Jeroboam, uh, all these unfamiliar names. You can read about them. <laughs> they actually appear as actual characters in the books of Kings. Uh, and it's helpful to know something about who they are because they get mentioned in the New Testament. And we get a sense of Israel's history and who, who's involved in it. Uh, so it's not the worst thing in the world to read the Bible just to get a sense of what's there. And sometimes, for instance, uh, if you're going to sit down with one of Paul's letters, especially the shorter ones, say Galatians, which we've been reading at Mass this last week, during the weekdays. Um, just to read it straight through once, just to get a sense of the whole idea of what he's getting at before you go back and then take small chunks. And then maybe you'll read a bigger portion at some other point. 
What I'm getting at here is that simple familiarity with what's in the Bible is helpful. Uh, so I, I, you shouldn't feel bad if once in a while it's helpful just to read the story of Elijah. You know, Elijah's a huge figure in the New Testament. How many of us have read uh, starting at 1 Kings 17 so we know what Elijah did? Or like the story about Elisha this morning. Elisha is Elijah's disciple and he heals Naaman, and the Syrian commander. Now, how many of us know about Elisha and what he it's helpful because Naaman uh, is mentioned by Jesus, and so to know something about what this story is about is helpful. Uh, so reading. Sometimes you just read, but sometimes, as I mentioned, we want to go more slowly, and we want to make sure that we understand what we're reading by the tentative reading. And um, an old uh, faculty member at the University of Chicago who was very influential when I was a student there, Alan Bloom, uh, he used to say uh, the most important thing about reading is that you understand every word. So if there's an unfamiliar word, don't be afraid. I, I, again, I make the brothers do this. Get out your dictionary and, and look it up. Sometimes it can be a word like faith. We think we understand faith and then you read Paul's letter to the Romans and you think, you know, I'm not sure I understand what he's talking about. What is, what is faith, actually? How's he meaning it here? What are the different possibilities? Because faith can mean all kinds of things. Uh, so just getting a sense of what each word means can be helpful. Um, I've had that happen several times uh, in, in my time in the monastery, where I just come up against a word that I, I thought I knew what it meant. And then I realized, well, wait a minute. Uh, this is something entirely different <laughs> than what I thought. Uh, and a dictionary can be helpful. Uh, and by the way, in the monasteries, they had these things. Jerome wrote a really important uh, book about the meaning of names and the meaning of, and uh, different plants that appear in the Bible and different animals. Because in Europe, they didn't have the same plants as they have in the Middle East and they didn't have the same animals. So Jerome would explain, well, this plant looks like this. It has these sorts of leaves. It's leaves are used for this kind of medicine and so on. And that helped the monks to uh, know, understand what they were reading. Um, so, so Alexio, just becoming familiar, taking the word in, bit by bit, little by little. Um, last thing I'll say about this is one of the principles that's important, St. Benedict in his chapter on Lent says that the abbot should give every monk a book from the library to be read straight through. And this has been interpreted in the tradition that uh, if we pick a book of the Bible with, that we're going to use for Lexio, we should stay with it till we're done and, not, and try to avoid jumping around from place to place. You know, anybody ever read the Jerusalem Bible? It's got these great footnotes and, and uh, references back and forth. And you can spend all your time jumping back and forth and checking all the references, which again isn't bad. But at some point what you want to do is try to follow through everything that happens in, in one book. And uh, this, it's a good discipline just to keep us focused on not getting too diffused in, in terms of our attention. Uh, so let's talk about meditation. What does that mean? Meditatio, in the Latin understanding, uh, implies rumination. So it implies chewing something for a long time. And in fact, um, 
one of the things the early Cistercians liked to talk about was, uh, uh, you know, cows that chew the cud. So they take in, they eat the grass, and then their digestive system is such that it, it, they they bring the grass back up after it's been partly uh, digested, and they chew on it some more. Okay, and then they swallow it again. So this is called chewing the cud. So you you ruminate over these words. You you keep working at them until you sort of break them apart and start to see deeper meanings to them, okay? And this is a slow process, but we're not in any hurry. <laughs> uh, St. Ephraim has a great uh, image of this. He says that uh, um, the word of God is like a fountain. Drink enough to slake your thirst for today. There's always more for tomorrow. You can't drink the whole thing. And you'll hurt yourself trying, so don't. <laughs> so don't feel like you have to be in a hurry because uh, Christ is, is Christ and no matter how he presents himself to us, we're, we are uh, in this dialogue with the Son of God. And so uh, it doesn't need, we don't need to figure it all out today or yesterday. Uh, it's a lifelong relationship we're, we're working on here. So... I've already mentioned that uh, there's this idea of learning by heart. And one of the things I would recommend is, say, if you can do 20 minutes of Lexio several days a week, the idea would be a little bit every day, but, you know, as you're able. If you can pick out just a few words from your Lexio each day and take it with you and repeat it throughout the day, um, oftentimes suddenly something will make sense as your subconscious mind is working on it. Other times you'll see it um, illuminates something about the day. Uh, one of the things I often tell new guys in the monastery is, uh, if you're not sure what to do for Lexio, open up St. Matthew's Gospel to chapter 5 and start reading the Sermon on the Mount until you get to something that, that you don't do, that he's telling us we should do, and then go out and do that. So, for instance, if, if you're like me and you have a choleric temperament, uh, it's easy to, to sort of harbor anger with people uh, who don't do what you want. And, uh, but our Lord says, well, you'll be you know, liable to judgment, uh, just as a murderer would be. So my job for today is to continually repeat that. You know? Harboring anger against my brother is liable to judgment. And so as I come up against situations that might make me angry during the day, I have to remember this. And so again, I, I perform God's word, God's commandments. And then I can go back the next day, once I've got that down, <laughs> I can go back and work on the other things that our Lord says in the Sermon on the Mount. But to do this, I have to take the word with me throughout the day and keep bringing it up, reminding myself. Um, sometimes it's good to keep a little journal or something that, that you can carry around in a coat pocket or something like that, pull it out and just read, remind yourself, okay, this is what I'm, I'm meditating on today. Uh, the other reason I think it's good to bring it out of this time that you spend alone with the Word is that um, one of the great dangers of our secular world is a kind of practical atheism. So we have religion as a kind of private thing. But when we go out into the world and start engaging with the rough and tumble of our society, uh, we forget 
You know, so all these great plans we had in the morning when we were talking to God, we get out in the world and we act as if God doesn't exist anymore. So there are ways to combat this, and one way is to memorize God's word and take it with us and just repeat it over and over again um, until it becomes a part of us. We just become a patient person instead of an angry person. You know, little by little, increase in virtue and uh, we become a different person. So that's meditation. Uh, the third stage is prayer, or oratio, as it's called in Latin. And what this means is, so God is speaking to us in the scriptures. And we are listening. We're trying to be attentive listeners and learners, disciples uh, of Christ. Hearing the word, putting it into action. But uh, we, aren't, uh, we aren't slaves of God though we might start off at sort of that level of relationship. Uh, we also are not just mercenaries who do, uh, again, it's not bad to be that, uh, to receive commandments and carry them out and expect a reward. God's promised us rewards, after all, if we do his, his work, and there's nothing wrong with seeking those rewards, actually. Uh, but if we really want to uh, live the fullest possible life of faith, we want to have a relationship with God. We want to know God. And uh, to do this, uh, like any other relationship, we have to share ourselves. And so prayer is a way of taking what God has said to us and making a return on it, and just as we're having a conversation. So an example of this would be uh, if we read something in the scriptures like, uh, you know, you have a, a great treasure stored up for you in heaven. St. Peter says at the beginning of his letter. So I might sort of intellectually get that. Yeah, heaven's going to be better than this place we're in now. Uh, but it doesn't really sort of touch me in any way. It's like, yeah, I, I, I all, we know that. Well, then I can say to God, Lord, help me really to desire this. You know, I really want to, I, I want to have what you wish to give me. And so I, I want to want it. I, I want to thirst for this. Can you help me? You know, so, we, so we take something of what we've, we've gotten. Or we hear that you know, all things work for uh, the good for those who are called. And we know that there's somebody in our family who's really suffering that we're really worried about. We say, you know, God, you promised that all things will work out. That things will work for the good of those who are called. Please help me to see how this is really happening. May, show me that this is true. Help, help me to see, help me to believe, strengthen my belief. So we take what we've got received in the word and we turn it into a prayer. We enter into a dialogue with the Lord. And um, what I've alluded to in this, this sort of stage of, of slave, mercenary, and then uh, this higher level, this is what the tradition would say is the, the obedience of a son or daughter. So um, again, to do what God asks to take in his word, to, to perform it, uh, because we're afraid of being punished, it's better than not doing God's will. Okay, let's start with that. So even though being a slave doesn't sound very glamorous, it's better than being a reprobate. <laughs> okay, so, and we might have to start there at certain times. There might be things God asks us to do that, that uh, we don't see the point in at all. But since he's asked us to do them, we go ahead and do it. The, it's, it's better to seek the reward because God, as I say, has promised us he, he, he wants us to be happy he wants us to uh, to flourish but according to 
the way he's set things up, because he's the creator, not the way we, we sort of want things for ourselves. So to, to train ourselves to want the rewards that God has offered us is a good thing, because it'll, it'll make us actually more productive in following God's commandments. Uh, but it's still not ideal. It's still kind of self-interested, you know? It's, uh, it's mercenary. And in our, our world, that's a much worse sounding thing than it would have been for, say, St. Bernard, who talks about this. So I, I want to say, either one of these models of, of relationship with God, they're not bad. But they're not ideal, because we can get to the point of actually realizing our call, which is to be sons and daughters of God. And what, what uh, marks the obedience of a son to his father is that he wants what the father wants. Right? They, they share a heart, as it were. They, they see things the same way. So again, our Lexia Divina is about coming to see things from God's perspective so that we want what God wants. And uh, uh, this requires us to enter into a certain kind of dialogue, uh, to be, uh, yeah, to share ourselves with God, I guess. To speak to Him. Then contemplation, this last one, it sounds very heady. Uh, we might think of it as resting in God, but it's really the, the crowning point where we come to be aware of God's presence. We entrust ourselves to Him. Uh, and uh, we, we, we can stop working, as it were. It's like after the six days of creation, there's all this work. I said reading is work. But the goal isn't just to work. The goal is to reach the point where we're done working and we can enjoy just knowing who God is. We can enjoy simply being in God's presence because we know that he's on our side. We know that he's taking care of us. We know that he's protecting us. So this is the, the goal. Uh, St. Augustine would have called this the enjoyment of God. You know, so there's all the things that God gives us to come to know him through the scriptures, through the liturgy, through our families, through the church, through the natural world. But the goal isn't just to sort of think thoughts about God, but to know Him and sort of relax with Him. This is so hard for us because how many of us really relax these days? Uh, uh, Anselm Grün, who's the, uh, the, he's been the seller for this monastery in uh, Germany for like 40 years, and he's written about 5,000 books. That's a conservative estimate. Uh, one of his books, he opens up by saying, you know, when a typical family goes on vacation, uh, there's all this worry about sort of getting the plane tickets and getting the tickets to Disneyland and all this. And then you, you go to Disneyland and you're on your feet running from one thing to the next. And then you have to you, you rent a car and drive home and you get in a, a traffic jam and you get back and you're more tired than when you started. <laughs> and he said, this is not the idea of rest that the Bible offers for us. You know, we should be desiring to enter into God's rest. And this means, uh, this doesn't mean uh, you know, sleeping or lights out. It means enjoying one another's company. <laughs> you know, just being together. Uh, the, the Eucharist is a great example of this. We just, we sit down and kneel together and we don't have to talk or anything. We just, it's just enjoying one another's company. But we'll enjoy each other's company better if we, if we know who it, this God is that we're, <laughs> that we're with. So the goal is contemplation. The goal is this resting in God. Um, understanding that we've reached, we've get, we're getting a foretaste of our goal. 
so that they would partake to some extent in actual experience of heaven. Um, so let me uh, let's let's reflect a little bit in the ten or fifteen minutes we have left on uh, some of the obstacles, which which are many these days, obstacles to lexio divina, and maybe what I would where I would start is um, if there are those of you here today who have done lexio divina, um, think about why you find it difficult sometimes. And if you haven't done Lexia Divina in the way I'm talking about it today, think about, say, if, if someone's giving you a book, a spiritual book of some kind, say, oh, this is a great book, you should read this. Or maybe you've, you've thought, you know, it'd be great to read something by the fathers of the church. So you pull out St. Augustine's City of God, you start reading it. And after about 10 pages, uh, I've got 900 pages to go and I have no idea what he's talking about. Uh, so let's think of those experiences where we want, you know, we, we desire to have this relationship with God. We get out of our spiritual reading and we run into some obstacles. What are some of those obstacles? I just ask you to share your experiences. Paul. Well, one thing, uh, this goes mainly with the reading, mm-hmm. the intellectual part. Uh, I find and probably everybody does it. When you read, all of a sudden, you're looking at the word, but you're thinking of something else. Distractions. Or the day or whatever. And yeah. then you find yourself swinging back into the reading. Uh-huh. And uh, I find, though, that, if you, especially like the, the gospel, if you read the most, if you read and you, again and again and again, mm-hmm. after a and catch yourself when you're doing that, mm-hmm. now and then, Good. that you'll be able to read consistently mm-hmm. without that that daydreaming going on in the back of the head and you're looking at the words. Yep, yep. And a lot of the words for itself somehow. Mm-hmm. So that it, if you do it enough, again and again, you're really kicking in the words as you're looking at them. Mm-hmm. Just daydreaming half the time. Great, great. Yeah, probably at some point, either uh, here or, or um, in a podcast, I should deal with distractions and thoughts because that's a major part of monastic spirituality is understanding that our thoughts uh, are unstable. <laughs> and so when we try to read yeah, distractions, uh, something's bugging us about something in our lives, we're worried about something, we're excited about something. And uh, so, yeah, distractions are a major obstacle. Uh, and we have this in common with St. Benedict's Day. It's not, this, this one isn't new to us. Other uh, obstacles we run into. Just, just for me, it's uh, quieting my mind from the divine wisdom. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like what she said. Yeah. You know, I read, do the, do the lectio, mm-hmm. and uh, then at the end, trying to quiet my mind. You know, mm-hmm. that's, that's my difficulty. Yeah, yeah. If, if any of you have read uh, John Cashin's conferences uh, at any length, they're, they're very long, but uh, his friend Germanus, in almost every conference has a moment where he says, you know, I'm, I'm praying in my cell and suddenly I'm flooded with all these distractions. What do I do? <laughs> and it's interesting because he keeps asking this of all the different Abbas they visit you know, out in the desert. And he gets several different answers, actually, but they mostly uh, center on uh, advancement in virtue and then um, uh, practice. Just keep keep at it. Just keep working at it, like you said. Just you get a distraction, put it aside, go back, keep, <laughs> eventually it gets easier, you know. Um, and uh, 
uh, I guess the other thing is, what what are you doing the rest of the day? You know, what 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 are the habits of behavior and thinking that you cultivate during the day? Uh, am, am I am, do I go from one thing to the next all day, or do I really plan and and stick to things and have some kind of uh, actual uh, discipline or ceases that, that contributes to a, a still mind, a still body, a still heart. So, but these are, yeah, this whole question of thoughts is, is a whole, that's a whole lecture. <laughs> Tony. Uh, and maybe it's just because of, you know, who I am and mm -hmm. why I live with my, and the fact that I meet my intellect into mm -hmm. whatever I think is important. Mm -hmm. But uh, um, a big obstacle for me is knowing where to start. Uh-huh, good. Um, yeah. And uh, one of my teachers said, you know, that's why we need teachers. Mm -hmm. Because somebody has to put a handle on the cup for you, so to speak, mm -hmm. so that you can pick it up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so just hearing that, just hearing the phrase, you have to read with from the heart. Mm -hmm. Is that the phrase? Uh, I, I'd like it eventually to read by heart, as it were. Yeah. Okay. So it becomes us. Yeah. So, but I think to get at the real meaning of that, mm -hmm. I have to know, I have to have some familiarity with this ancient idea along with the templates of what the heart is and does. Mm -hmm. Its purpose is to know. Right. It's not to love, but to know. Mm -hmm. Love is the desire to know. Mm -hmm. To have that vocabulary of that language, first of all, to start mm -hmm. with. Yeah. Um, otherwise, I don't even know who I am or why I'm sitting with this book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you're touching on several things. So another obstacle is just sort of knowing uh, where to start. So let me address that one for just a moment. Uh, the Bible is a really long book, and it's actually uh, made up of 72 books, uh, some short, some long, written over the course of a thousand years by many different authors, um, many different genres. So you have a book like Jonah, which is a kind of short story. You have a, uh, an epistle like Philippians, which is a letter. You've got Gospels, which are their own sort of idea. It's a particular genre. You've got prophecies. You've got histories. So how do you know where to start in all this? I would say a couple things about that. It, it requires discernment, and having somebody help you with that it would be a good thing if you think it's important. Uh, but I would say you'll learn by experience, but for most beginners, you want to start with something like the Gospels. You want to start with something that's fairly clear, that's central to the faith. So the Gospels have the, the meat and potatoes of, of the faith. And then what, you'll, what you might find is, as you go through and Jesus says something like, uh, uh, for those who believe, John the Baptist is Elijah. Okay, You think Elijah, okay. So when you get to the end of Matthew's Gospel, and you think, well, you know, I'd, I'd really like to know more about Elijah. Maybe I'll try 1 Kings. You know, Maybe I'll go to that. So you can listen for those sorts of directions. Or you might think um, you do John's Gospel, and at the end there's, there's a whole chapter about Peter. You think, well, you know, maybe I should read Peter's letters. You know? so, so that's uh, discernment is important. There are books of the Bible that are really, really difficult to do lexio on. I'd say like Leviticus, uh, the prophet Ezekiel, um, Ezra and Nehemiah. I wouldn't start with those. <laughs> In fact, I, I would guess most monks never get to those books, except maybe Ezekiel. But Ezekiel's pretty hard, just so you know. Uh, but Isaiah, if you're doing the Old Testament, Genesis, Isaiah, shorter prophets, those are, those are good places to start. 
Um, and in some cases, because the word is all at all points to Christ, it sort of doesn't matter where you start also. You know what I mean? You could just start somewhere, and then the, the Holy Spirit will speak to you. In terms of unfamiliarity of vocabulary, that's a, that's a real difficulty. I've mentioned the possibility of using the Bible or the dictionary for that. Uh, sometimes it can be helpful to get a commentary that can explain these things. For what it's worth, one of the most useful things I ever did was read the glossary of the English translation mm-hmm. of the Philokalia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it offers definitions of things like what the heart is, what yeah. it's supposed to do, mm-hmm. what passions are. Mm-hmm. You know, what, uh, there's, there's a technology here, there's a spiritual mm-hmm. technology mm-hmm. here that you aren't going to find in the dictionary. No, and you won't find it explicitly in the Bible. This has been something that's been worked out. So the Philokalia is a collection of sayings of early monks. and uh, But when we say early, they're still 300, 400 years after Christ, and so or after the resurrection, let's say. And so um, uh, there's been a lot of time to kind of sort out. Because when the Bible uses the word heart, it's in many different contexts again. So how do you make it all hang together? That's what theology is about, sort of explaining these things. And so these resources can be very helpful. Yeah, yeah, thank you. So uh, I'll just say that the danger of of commentaries is that you you just let the commentary sort of do your thinking for you, right? Right. So so they're they're a helpful thing, kind of like a crutch. If you have a broken leg, you need a crutch to until. Uh, but the goal isn't to have a crutch forever; it's to heal your leg so you can walk. Again. So a commentary or a glossary or a theological treatise can sort of get you on your feet, but the goal is to walk by yourself eventually under your own power. Thank you. Yeah. So distractions, difficult vocabulary. Um, I'll offer my own reflection on this. Uh, To me, the big obstacles in our contemporary situation have to do with the pervasive amount of words that we encounter. And it's difficult to take words seriously because they're just multiplied over and over. We just heard in the the rule this morning, we had the 10th step of humility, and that is when a monk speaks, he uses few words and is serious and isn't easily moved to laughter. And... um, I was struck at the general chapter, a retired abbot from Ankalka gave a presentation on his opinion on how the monks and nuns should coordinate our lives together in some way, and he's been a liaison since he retired as abbot, but he started this work while he was still abbot, and someone uh, asked him, how did you manage to sort of juggle uh, your time between working with the nuns and being avid at this big monastery because they have 40 or 50 monks at this monastery. And um, he was sort of thinking, and I was expecting him to sort of give this explanation. And his response was, uh, I did my best. <laughs> and he said in such a way as not to be a wise guy, but you realize there's no answer. There's no answer to that question. You simply... Do your best. Uh, I don't have the kind of wisdom to speak that way. But, it, but this is a discipline of the monastic life, to learn how to say only what needs to be said. And the difficulty is that when, when there's 24-hour news channels, when there's the internet, 
when we've got books, 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 books everywhere, uh, we get used to having this kind of overflow of information, words, and so on. And it's important to find ways to give ourselves a kind of break uh, from this flood of words. And uh, I don't know exactly how you do that in the world, but this is something we can work on together uh, as oblates and monks. In the monastery, of course, uh, we don't have a newspaper, we don't have a television. We do have the internet, but the use is, is fairly uh, circumscribed, and say all the computers are in one area, so if anybody's using the internet, everybody knows. And so that helps us to sort of monitor how much it's used. Um, I, with the younger guys, I, I tend to have a fairly strong oversight of what they read, because we have a big library, and for some guys, like I was when I was in the house, I want to read every single book in the library now. <laughs> And uh, it's not healthy uh, because it dilutes, it, it gets us in the habit of just kind of cycling through all this verbiage constantly and not being able to stay still with just a very simple idea uh, and, and treasure a sort of concision of expression. And again, God's word is like this. You think of, again, think of when the Pharisees tried to get Jesus back into a corner. You know, someone came to you and said, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? You know, we would get all nervous. Like, well, let's see. Well, Thomas Aquinas said, blah, 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 blah. And our Lord, you know, two sentences. This gets right to the heart of it. We can do this, but it does require us to be very uh, circumspect about the amount of words we let into our, our ears and minds and to choose wisely what we're actually going to read and how we're going to read it, okay? Yeah. Just something I noticed, mm -hmm. going back to a text like Hammer Troll, mm -hmm. is that I've been reading it since I was 16, I'm 50 years old. Mm -hmm. And every time I go back to it, I find something new. Mm -hmm. The book isn't new, my experience is different. Mm -hmm. The book has become a mirror mm -hmm. of my experience over time. And returning to the one text again and again makes that possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, so it, what I learned from that is that it can be much more profitable to stick with the same text yeah. and to be spread across mm -hmm. so many. Yeah. Yeah, we get a lot out of the, the depth of that kind of meditative reading uh, that we don't get if we spread ourselves too thin. And the danger, and I guess I say in our world, is just that uh, words, 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 we're spread so thin. Uh, it just becomes a habit if we're not careful. Well, I'll, I'll need to stop here, but I hope this is helpful for you. And uh, I do, I, I thank you for your patience. I, this summer, uh, I was supposed to be taking sort of mini sabbaticals throughout the summer, and so I've not been very responsive in terms of getting uh, meetings going online and, and podcasts and things like that. I hope to address that soon. And um, hopefully that would also give us a kind of forum for questions if you had follow-up questions. If you're trying to do like so, you find some difficulties. Um, I, I'd like to be able to offer some place where we could share ideas and experiences, um, because you know, an hour and ten minutes once a month, it's it's kind of hard to get everything in. Uh, the other thing I wanted to say about that is I'm toying with the idea. This this would not be another sort of obligation for you, but I'd be interested to hear, think about this, and, and uh, you can get back to me after you've thought about it. Uh, I was thinking of asking one of the brothers, maybe Brother Ignatius, 
just to have a, a, a group that does Lexio together from time to time, maybe once or twice a month, like in an evening after Vespers, sit down, half hour, all do Lexio on one text together and then share. Uh, I did this shortly after college. Actually, if you've ever heard of the Lumen Christie Institute, uh, this began as a Lexio group, uh, a group of friends at the, the University of Chicago. And we used to get together uh, once a week and do Lexio on text together and share our, our insights. Um, uh, I, I heard of a, a monastery of St. Bede's in Peru, Illinois. They have a group like this, and I thought uh, it might be helpful for us to offer this, not just for oblates, but for anybody who's interested in this. Uh, so think about it. If it's something that you think would be helpful or interesting, uh, let me know. Or if you think it wouldn't be helpful, you can let me know that too. That would be fine. So let's, uh, let's finish together with a prayer.